Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Oh, look. Another glorious episode. <laughs> Makes me sick. <laughs> I say up and die. Happy Halloween, Sam. Hi. Happy Halloween, you witch. <laughs> oh, yes, I am a witch. Someone said this to me this week, and I don't know why I've never thought about it this way, but they were like, you know, Halloween is just gay Christmas, right? And I was like, holy motherfuck. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely so true. true. And this is the ultimate gift. Yes. From gay Christmas to the world. Hocus Pocus is a gift that just won't stop giving. It really just only gets better with age. Absolutely. So before we get into this movie, I just wanted to give a quick thank you to all of you guys listening out there this Halloween season and also to our Patreon members. Thank you so much for supporting us. Um, If you're not yet a member of the Patreon and you would like to be, we have lots of cool stuff up there for you. We have bonus episodes, merch, you can vote on the shit that we talk about on the podcast. And a very special episode for this month, which is Hocus Pocus 2. Yes. We're going to download our emotional reaction to that film <laughs> for our bonus episode this month. So. so if you're in any way curious about how we like that, you could join our Patreon and see us and hear us uh, respond to that film. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. So Sam, what is your relationship to this film? Lover, mentor, <laughs> confidant, not afraid to reference, not reference, put it in a blender, spit on it. Vomit it, <laughs> shake it up, stir it. I love this film. I think it's, it's. I have the earliest memories of seeing this movie in particular. And um, it just makes me feel really cozy and warm. And I kind of just want to fall asleep when I put it on. So this may seem like an out of the blue question, but I want you to answer honestly. When you go back in your memory, watching this as a kid... Did you watch it on television or did you have like a VHS or a DVD that you would watch? DCOM. It was, I only watched it on Disney. Interesting. Okay, cool. We'll come back to that later, why that's relevant. I was <laughs> okay. just curious. I, I'm the same way. We didn't own this movie. And honestly, for as much as my mom censored out witchcraft and like general tomfoolery for kids out of my life, she could not stop Hocus Pocus from getting in. It's and a quality film. You can't, can't stop it. Yeah. Can't stop, won't stop. This is one of the number one Halloween movies of all time, and I'm so excited to be talking about it with you. And, you know, you might ask, is this gay? And I will say yes, because the creator is gay. <laughs> I never questioned it for a second. This is culturally very, very gay. Every single gay person has a very close relationship to this film. Most straight people do as well, but the biggest stands of this movie are always gay. Absolutely. Like, I like to see men dressed up like the Sanderson sisters out on the streets of Halloween every yes, year. Yes, And they're just living their best life. And it, it just, like, I feel like this movie takes everything good about being gay and, like, turns it up, like, cranks the volume up. Mm-hmm. And I now attribute that to its creator, Kenny Ortega. Kenny Ortega, this man right here, is responsible for so much of my childhood. Absolutely. If that name sounds familiar to you uh, for other reasons, it's probably High School Musical. <laughs> okay, I realized High School Musical wasn't our wasn't on our like future episodes list, but it absolutely needs to be. Oh yeah, because um, Ryan Luca, Lucas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that, the character Sharpay and uh, Lucas, her brother, is definitely a gay man. And yes. in the second one, he basically has like a sing-off erotic foreplay with that other guy. Okay, we can't get too much into it because this is going to be a whole episode. <laughs> okay, yeah, Maybe yeah. one per each of the High School Musical 1, 2, 3. Maybe we'll do a big roundup. Who knows? But just know that that's in the future. And I was like, duh, High School Musical. How can we not do that film? Absolutely. I just have one question before we move on. Did you ever learn the dances? I know Every dance. Oh, my God. I know every song, maybe definitely in one, most in two, some in three, but not all. Fantastic. Oh, we, <laughs> we Lizzie and I sometimes do Sharpay's uh, songs at uh, karaoke, so. That's a great karaoke number. Yeah. A dip in the pool, a trip to, to the spa, and the stays of my shades. The whole world according to moi. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So with Hocus Pocus 2 coming out, which we're not going to talk about a lot today, so don't worry about spoilers, y'all. But with that coming out and 
basically a couple weeks ago. The word I've been hearing a lot in association with Hocus Pocus is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember this movie. It makes me so nostalgic for my past. And in general, I'm kind of getting to this age. You know, I was born in the 90s. I'm now old enough and have enough of my own income that I'm starting to see like my childhood favorite media thrown back at me by capitalism yeah. to try to make money off of me. Uh-huh. And it's it's making me think a lot. I've been really ruminating on nostalgia and like what that word means. Like, how would you describe nostalgia? I think nostalgia is defined by a longing for your past, like an idea that your past was greater than it was simply because it is in the past. Mm. Oh, that's a good definition. What Do you have the Webster's Dictionary defines nostalgia as? No, I, I like I truly was just like thinking about this a lot because I'm like, this is every fucking day I wake up to a new trailer with some reboot or sequel or whatever of something I used to love. And like, I get this like really fluttery, almost nervous excitement feeling about it because I know it's going to go one of two ways. Like either best case scenario, it does stroke those feelings that I had for the original content and I'm going to feel like warm fuzzies or it's going to be like a betrayal so deep it almost like hurts emotionally in like yeah. this really crazy way. And I was just thinking, I'm like, why is nostalgia so powerful? I just I think Disney is its whole business model is based on nostalgia, just like, and not even just our generation. If you look, they're like banking on all the people in the 70s who love the Star Wars. They're milking yeah, that to shit. Absolutely. And now they realize we like Hocus Pocus. They're going to milk that to shit. And I, I, every single generation, they'll pick a few things and just like milk the IP to absolute dust, you know, and it's hard not to be cynical about reboots because, yeah. you know, they, it's a cash grab. And they know that as well. So they put a title on it and they bring some stars back. But they, I don't think they really invest enough in the story most of the time to really satisfy anyone, like new viewers even, right. to to enjoy the experience because um, they're trying to please too many people at once. Yeah, you're right. They're not banking on new people coming to this content and liking it. Like Hocus Pocus 2 Again, I said we wouldn't talk about it. Hocus Pocus 2 is not for new fans. It's for old fans. They're banking on that you have a working knowledge of how this world works and these rules. And that's it. Yeah, I think there uh, one reboot is coming to mind as something I didn't care for, but they did do enough of a twist on it that I could see how newer fans would enjoy it. But that would be Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the Netflix show, you mean? Yeah, I was a... It's no surprise. Maybe it's a surprise to our listeners, but I talk about Sabrina the Teenage Witch Endlessly, I think I know every single episode of that show. I can like name them off the top of my head. Um, And it had such a campy tone and was just so wholeheartedly itself and was really ridiculous. And Melissa Joan Hart, I think, Mm -hmm. is an incredible Serena the Teenage Witch. And they did like a spooky, more of like an American Horror Story style. Yeah, good description. Yeah, with this one. And although I didn't like it and didn't continue watching it, I know a lot of people who didn't like the previous Sabrina that did like it. So there is substance there for somebody at the very least, you know. Yeah, that's a good example of like, if you're going to take the IP and bring it back to life, like do something new with it. Go completely off off kilter, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like ruminating on all of this nostalgia talk. I think I finally did kind of boil down like why for me personally, like seeing these images of Hocus Pocus come back to me every year because I watch this movie every year mm-hmm. around Halloween, like mm-hmm. without fail, um, probably for like 25 years now. And like seeing these new images of Hocus Pocus 2 has been like kind of stirring all this up. And like kind of like you said earlier, like I think this nostalgia factor is kind of like a bridge. It builds a bridge between who you are now and who you were. So like watching Hocus Pocus is almost like sliding directly back to that like six-year-old, seven-year-old girl who was planning her Halloween costume but didn't have to buy it herself. Mm-hmm. Knowing that trick-or-treating was coming but didn't have to worry about the logistics, that carefree life. And I think like for queer people too, I think nostalgia has an extra weight because If you grew up in a society where a lot of the media that is being presented to you does not necessarily reflect how you see yourself or how you want to be seen, when you do find those characters or those scenes or those moments in a movie that mean something to you that feel right, you like hyper fixate on them and you create like this connection and almost absorb that character into your personality. Yeah. And a lot of people have said that about High School Musical, like 
without High School Musical, I might not have come out in high school or I wouldn't have felt comfortable being the person I wanted to be. And I've definitely heard that about Hocus Pocus as well. And a number of, you know, basically this whole podcast, most of the time we're talking about movies that we loved as kids that we could pull like that one image from and hold on to it. So, you know, we really want that original IP to be honored with these sequels and everything. That's that's basically what I came up with for nostalgia. So getting to like kind of wallow in the nostalgia of this movie this week, doing all this research was like really, really nice. I felt very, very cozy, like to my core. Yeah, I think that as you were saying, when you don't, you are faced with the lack of representation, you do kind of search for characters that portray people who embrace their oddities, even though they're supposed to be heterosexual, right? Like I remember watching The Breakfast Club and the character who's played by Ali Sheedy, who is kind of, you know, she she dusts out her dandruff and is like clearly a lesbian <laughs> and they like femme her up and she's really uncomfortable. And then eventually she's like, I love being femme and I want to kiss a boy. I'm like, yeah, fucking sure. for sure. <laughs> the first like half of that movie, I like related to her so deeply. And it's like the lack of representation really drives us to kind of get closer to subject matters we probably wouldn't even give a fuck about. Like witches. Like I I relate to this movie and I I've never I've never grown up in New England. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've n- none of any of these things could have possibly happened to me and yet they feel like part of my childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Like the things that you relate to are deeper than the face value of the thing itself. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, love that shit. Love this movie. Let's get into it. Let's watch the trailer. Please. Jump back. Twist the bones and bend the back. Back in 1693, the people of Salem, Massachusetts... Witches! Yes? ...thought they got rid of the Sanderson sisters for good. Uh, We shall be back! (laughs) 300 years later, it's Halloween Eve. And they're back. Uh-oh. We are home. Oh, stay for supper. I'm not hungry. But we are. So a brief synopsis of Hocus Pocus. After 300 years of slumber, three sister witches are resurrected in Salem on Halloween night. And it's up to three kids and their newfound feline friend to put an end to the witch's reign of terror once and for all. I feel like how people feel about sports. The Super Bowl. Yes. You're like, let's go. <laughs> I should like have my face painted. I'm, I'm just wearing <laughs> like a Thackeray Bing shirt right now, but I feel I feel like I should be like, I don't know, pouring Gatorade on someone. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, coach. Dude, Sam bought us the cutest Halloween shirts. I don't know if y'all can see them. You probably can't see them. Mine's a jack-o'-lantern face and hers is the cutest little black cat wearing a witch's hat. Yes, it is. So cute. Uh, Lizzie, thank you so much for doing Hocus Pocus. God, I fucking love this movie. Damn, it's so fucking good. It's so good. Oh, all right. So a little background info about the who of Hocus Pocus. This movie was released in 1993. It stars Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy, and features Omri Katz, Thora Birch, Vanessa Shaw, Jason Marsden, and Doug Jones. Um, The story is by Mick Garris and David Kirshner, and this film was directed by Kenny Ortega. Kenny Ortega. Kenny motherfucking Ortega. (sighs) Kenny Ortega. I want to talk about Kenny Ortega. Please. Kenny Ortega is, he's fantastic. He's an openly gay man, has been for a long time, and has been working in the entertainment industry literally his whole life. So I want to talk a little bit about his background and just some really interesting things I found about him. There is so much BTS material for this film, and he's very vocal about his love for the film. And like any interview you hear with the cast that he worked with on this film, they all rave over Kenny saying he brings such like a creative childlike energy. He's very positive. He's like a cheerleader on set. He's always bringing everyone up. He's very like focused on making sure everyone's comfortable. And he's especially good at working with like younger actors. And But he's done a lot more than even I realized. So a little bit about how he grew up. Kenny Ortega was born and raised in Palo Alto, California. He was a grandson of Spanish immigrants. And get this, he was a cheerleader in high school. <gasps> Off nice. to a good start. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Um, so Kenny's first job actually was as an actor in a touring production of Hair. 
And then he worked to becoming a choreographer for movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes, that one scene. That one scene. That's kind of like his calling card is like putting one really theatrical Broadway number in an otherwise non-musical film. He would have loved my best friend's wedding. He would have tore that shit up. <laughs> I bet you he's on the special thing. So oh, I would, for I would sure. Be curious. Yeah. Um, but he also choreographs Xanadu to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Love Julie Newmar, and one of my fucking favorite films of all time, Dirty Dancing. This was something I just found out. I had no idea he was the choreographer behind Dirty Dancing, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I found that out recently uh, listening to another podcast about about Hocus Pocus. And gosh, this man, I don't understand how people choreograph. I don't want to get into a, a like a, too much of a rabbit hole here, but like, how do you choreograph? What the fuck? I think your brain just kind of works like that because I had a friend in high school who now works as a dance choreographer, among many other things. And like one of our fun things we would do is like after cheer practice or whatever, he would take me and a few of my cheer friends and like make us do little dances and formations and would always be like, okay, now you over there and you over here and up, down. And I think your brain just kind of works like that. Uh, but it, it really works in particular for him as a film director because I've said this before and I'll say it again. Blocking is such an mm -hmm. underutilized and underrecognized element of filmmaking and choreography is... I feel like half blocking and movement and the movement of Hocus Pocus is so fun and so iconic, you know, whether it's the camera moving around a scene or the actors engaging with each other. I mean, just think about like the iconic Hocus Pocus walk, all three sisters yeah. arm in arm going, oh, is, don't oh, they call oh. it like hag walk or something <laughs> yeah. and they go like that. Hag walk. Do you know the three actors came up with that themselves? They on did? Set? Oh, that's They're like, Kenny, can we show you this? The hag walk. Uh, I think it's, it's great because like, even if you are an audience member who does not notice the blocking of a particular film, it's, it's difficult as an actor to embody a character, especially in the quiet moments when maybe you're not the focal point of the scene. You have to say, okay, when he's talking or like, I, maybe I should stand here and put my hands behind my back and I don't know what to do with my legs. I don't know what to do with my arms. I don't know if I should be holding this broom like this. Like taking into account the real physicalities of a character and directing these characters with a lot of purpose and with a lot of specific motivation really helps them to embody their character. Mm -hmm. And there's never a scene in this film where the background actors or the people who are not speaking look uncomfortable or unsure of what to do. Oftentimes, like if Winnie and Mary are in the front of frame, like having a discussion about the potion, we'll see Sarah in the background, like dancing or eating a spider or like doing her own little thing. Like there's always something going on in the depth of the frame. Yeah. And it's just so much fun because there's always something to look at. And for a kid's movie, you want it to be entertaining. You want to like keep your eye and hold your focus. And this film definitely does that. And the blocking has a lot to do with it. In addition to his film work, though, he has done a lot in musical entertainment choreography. He's choreographed for Olivia Newton-John, Madonna, Cher, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson. He's choreographed for the Oscars, the Olympics, the Super Bowl. <sighs> He's done, like, fucking everything. Jeez. Wow. Prolific. That's incredible. Prolific. And um, like I said, he's an openly gay man. And I knew, like, as a creator, he's contributed a lot of content and a lot of movies that queer people can enjoy visually. But what I didn't know is, like, his personal story behind his journey and how closely it is tied to the entertainment industry. So there's this great article by Variety and from 2020. And it kind of just kind of highlights his career, but they do talk specifically about him being a queer creator in this realm. And so they ask him a question, do you think there's a queer aesthetic that runs through all of your movies? And he said, I do, because that's who I am. I put a lot of who I am into my work, whether it's screaming at you or whether it's just sort of quietly there, it's there. Subtextually. Some might say subtextually. <laughs> uh, we've said this so many times, but as a queer person, everything that you create is queer, whether it's a comment on heterosexuality, even it is it is gay in its essence. And there is no part of me that is surprised that that the director of this film is gay. No, absolutely not. It makes total sense. And you can you can feel it. You yeah. can feel it in how the characters are made. He said that uh, when he was developing the characters in his mind and with the actors, uh, the three characters of the Sanderson sisters, that he wanted them to embody drag queens. Mm. He said, basically, these witches are drag queens. And he said, bring that characterization, have fun, like go there with them. And he said, 
seeing them put on their costumes and hair and makeup for some of the first times was really seeing the character snap into place, which I'm not a drag queen, but I feel like those pieces of your persona are probably so powerful to how you portray and how you get into that character. Yeah, I imagine it's very liberating to completely disappear behind a huge costume and and really be able to portray such like vivid and high emotion. So Kenny goes on to tell a story in this article. I just wanted to point it out because I thought it was important. Uh, He tells the story about how on his first job, which like I said, was playing a touring actor in the production of Hair in 1971. Uh, his character is bisexual, and during the show, he his character goes into the audience and kind of like riffs and engages with certain audience members. And one night at a show in South Carolina, he just so happened to pick the local chief of police <gasps> to mess with in the audience. Wow. He did not like that, the chief of police, <sighs> needless to say. And a few days later, Kenny was arrested in his hotel for narcotics charges. Basically, the chief of police had been like super threatened by his sexuality and planted drugs in Kenny's room, like tons of narcotics. So he got slapped with these like crazy charges. And eventually it came out what had happened, that none of this was actually tied to him and that it was planted. And the chief of police lost his job. Yeah, he fucking did. Yeah, he fucking did. Fucking... Thank God. But Kenny says of the experience, I was set free, but I was never the same. Christ, I'm still always looking over my shoulder. He's like 21 years old at this point. Like something that could have ruined his life, like up to 25 years in prison, just because he was playing a character in a show. And theater creates such a safe space for queer people to express themselves and even to be within that safe space and realize even there you're not safe. Ugh. It makes your job so much harder. Yeah, it's like, what a huge test for your first job to be presented with this level of animosity and this level of danger and fear. And then, like, he chose to continue forward because he tells a story about, in that same article, a few months later, Kenny says, months later, I'm in Los Angeles in the show and my publicity folks come to me and say, the advocate, the gay and lesbian periodical is looking for actors that will come out, that we need soldiers to come out and stand for change. And I thought, well, I've been singing for change for almost three years. I'd be a hypocrite if I said no. And after long thought, my best friend and I, we came out on the front pages of The Advocate. Wow. Oh, that's so sweet. I was 21, 22 years old. I never regretted it, and I knew that at the time there could be discrimination in the job, that as an actor I might not get hired, that as a hopeful choreographer that I might be looked over. But I never regretted my choice, and it wasn't without putting myself at risk. Like, what? I just got chills. One years old, first job, and he's been unapologetic ever since then. And it's really worked out for him. I mean, if he had let that first experience halt his career there— we wouldn't have gotten this style of hocus pocus, I bet. We wouldn't have gotten high school musical <laughs> in the way it was presented to us. And, you know, Cher wouldn't have gotten Kenny Ortega in her tour. It just goes to show so many cultural phenomenons, like people that you base like your personality off of or who writes your favorite songs or who choreographs your favorite musicals or these things that are intri- like intrinsic to your character are created by people who are scared. And in Kenny Ortega's case, he jumped off the deep end and I'm glad he did. He he probably set the stage for a lot of other people to do so because he was so successful. But you're asking individuals to to maybe sacrifice their whole careers and livelihood uh, to be themselves. And it's just... I, it's really sad that at that time, you know, the advocate was like, please come out. Right. You know, like, like, there, is there anybody in here? Let us know if you could hear us, you know, like, please come out. But it's, it's a lot easier now to some extent. It's very difficult for some people, but it's because of people like Kenny Ortega that it's gotten easier. Yeah. And he's basically said as much like he's, he's 70 years old now. And he said he's gotten to see the rhetoric change from parents and adults saying, what is this message you're teaching my kids? What is this perversion you're presenting to our children? To the children themselves coming up to him and saying, thank you so much for your work. Like, I've been watching this since I was a child. This has helped me so much to feel comfortable in who I am. And and that's so beautiful that he recognizes that we've come a long way and that we still have a long way to go. And 
the small victories in what he's done. Absolutely. All right. So without further ado, you want to talk about the plot of Hocus Pocus? Let's get... Yeah, I... <laughs> I was trying to do more puns. My puns have not been landing today, folks. Let's get witchy with it. Yeah. So we open the film flying in over Salem, Massachusetts in 1693. Thackeray Binks, a young boy, wakes to find that his sister has been kidnapped by the three witches in the woods. Can I just say, Thackeray Binks is hot. Okay. That's a lesbian, right? The hair. He does kind of read. Right. Okay, but Thackeray is not a real name. You know how I know? How? I went on Facebook and I typed in Thackeray and went to people and no people with the first name Thackeray came up. So, And there are people named after Harry Potter, you know, like <laughs> if there's no Thackerays, then that's really not a name. Made up. Yeah. And did you know that Thackeray is played by two different boys? I know the voice actor is a different person and they dub him in even underneath the the live action character. Exactly. Doing Zachary Binks. The voice of Thackeray Binks in human and cat form is Jason Marsden, who's like, I tried to like pull some things that you would know him from, but he's just like a voice actor for literally everything you've ever seen. Um, but the body is an actor called Sean Murray. So fun fact. I do know a lot of really weird facts about this film. Throw them out. You know I'm a fun fact collector. You are. All right. So Thackeray goes into the woods to try to rescue his sister, but he sees in the witch's hovel that... With the help of a one-eyed, flesh-bound book, the witches are brewing up a potion to stay forever young by consuming the child's soul. Not to be a big bee, but, like, i rather sacrifice a kid every now and then if it means the Sanderson sisters are just, like, around being cool. Honestly, I have no problem with that. Kids don't <laughs> even know what they're missing out on. No. Like, they get to live the best part of life and then just go away. You die before you have to learn how to do your taxes? Yeah. That sounds like a great deal to me. Honestly, perfect way to go. Yeah. Other side side note, the way that Winnie talks to this book, she's like, oh, hello, Ooh. bookie, bookie, I love you. Oh, yes, you do, do, good morning. That's, <laughs> like, exactly how I talk to my pug. I was going to say... Wow, that's literally the words in my mouth were that's how my mom talks to her pug. <laughs> my mom has a pug that looks identical to Lizzie's pug, and I can't say that she wasn't what's the word influenced by Lizzie. It's Lizzie's pug, Ramona, to get a pug. Liz my mom met Ramona and was like turned on her heel and like went to get a pug. Uh, you bought that pug for her. I got that pug for my mom for Christmas, so. and it's the best thing I've ever given anyone. And she's like, <laughs> oh, and it's like <laughs> it looks like book it, it really looks does like book. it was like oh, that's Ramona that's Penny oh, but in this scene we meet our three witches we have Winnie played by Bette Midler Mary played by Kathy Najimi and Sarah played by Sarah Jessica Parker Sarah's so hot Sarah is my f god I can't even pick a favorite she's so funny though she makes me laugh Probably more than any of them. So hot. I've never been attracted to Sarah Jessica Parker in any other role right. other than this one. Okay, Sarah Jessica Parker has really grown on me because I'm a recent convert to <laughs> Sex in the City. But this I, is easily her best role. I told after watching my Big Fat Greek Wedding, which comes up a lot on this podcast, I told Lizzie that she could see more of, what's that guy's name? Um, John Corbett. I said, there's more John Corbett in season two of Sex in the City. And she was like, really? Like <laughs> with the remote in hand. I went directly to those episodes, the one with John Corbett. I skipped the one where they break up. Spoiler yeah. alert. It's like 30 but years old. But I was old. like, this shit is so good. I was mad. It's so fucking funny. Sarah Jessica Parker is a great character in Sex in the City. But even though she's stunning, she's like a beautiful woman. Nothing has ever done it for me like hocus pocus you want to unpack that or we just want to let that stand she's it's i think it's the heavy makeup it's and the, the curly hair because she is not your usual type at all your irl type yeah my irl type does not look like sarah jessica parker your irl type is like winnie <laughs> <laughs> like bossy kind of mean opinionated opinionated knows her shit yeah kind of short <laughs> Yeah, that's so it's it's the antithesis of my type. But there's something about the confidence. Yeah. And I really like when people are stupid. Like, I think I'm quite <laughs> stupid. That's why you're my friend. Yeah, I think I, I think that there's something really endearing about understanding that life is ridiculous. Yeah. 
And she really does commit to this character so much. Um, a fun fact about Sarah Jessica Parker in this movie. So when the witches are flying on their brooms and Swiffers and whatnot, how they filmed that was it was like literal harnesses like you would in the old school Peter Pan movies. And Sarah Jessica Parker enjoyed being in the harness so much that she would just like shove a New York Times magazine into her bodice and would just sit up there and read it between like setups and at lunch and stuff. She's like, no, I'm good. I'll stay up here. Just throw me an Oreo. Sarah, you want to come down? And then she's like, no, it's going to be a few hours. I'm good. Okay. Doing the crossword. <laughs> oh my God. Love it. Another fun fact. Apparently J-Lo auditioned for the role of Sarah. Shut up. That would have been a different movie entirely. Oh my gosh. No way. Yeah. Wow. That's really freaking me out. I don't know what to do with that. Just sit on it. Hold on to that. I'm going to need to ruminate on that yeah. before I can make an opinion. Get back to me on that one. we Will do. So back in the story, Thackeray the boy tries to save Emily, but the witches end up eating her soul and changing him into a black cat. The townsmen show up in a big mob and they hang the sisters, but not before the sisters cast a spell. And they say, on Hallow's Eve, when the moon is round, a virgin will summon us from under the ground. Virgin. <laughs> virgin. You're about to hear the V word a lot more. I love this movie for saying virgin as much as it does. So Thackeray is now a black cat, which there are worse things in life to be. He's the cutest little cat. It's giving Salem. Definitely giving Salem. Love him. Um, but this black cat or the idea of this black cat of being a boy turned into a cat is actually the original thought. Or the original idea behind Hocus Pocus. So producer David Kirshner came up with the idea for Hocus Pocus while sitting with his daughter outside at Halloween. And they were greeted by a little black cat. And he wove this story about a boy who was turned into a black cat by a witch. And titled the story Halloween House, which he then sold to Disney. Wow. Um, the original story was apparently much darker and was about older children. And another little fun fact, because Spielberg comes up a lot on this podcast, the script was actually offered to Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's company that did like E.T., Poltergeist, all those great movies at that time. But Steven Spielberg turned it down like a little bitch dude he doesn't really have like the best judgment because he chose to do the haunting <laughs> but didn't choose to do hocus pocus yeah what the fuck i mean maybe if if the script was totally different i could see like you know i mean et was a children's movie with more like adult themes so i don't it seems like right up the alley right i think he was like mad because disney was involved and he saw disney as a threat to his company but, like, why not go into forces? Join forces. Make something great. Come on, man. I mean, I Come love on. Thackeray as a cat. I think the most heartbreaking scene in the movie is, like, that two-second clip where the cat, like, Thackeray as a cat is, like, weaving around his dad's foot. Yeah. And his dad kind of, like, shoes him off. I know. It's like, open your eyes to what's in front of you. <laughs> that cat's your son, obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Honestly, I'm... <laughs> Uh, we said something the other day, like, what if Lee, our producer, just called us and was like, guys, I switched bodies with my mom and I need to, like, do this whole crazy process to get a switch back and I have until tomorrow at midnight. I'd be like, all right, sure. let's go. Who's driving? I'm going to get some Red Bull. Let's let's hit this thing. Yeah. If any, if you came up to me and was just like, I was Freaky Friday, I'd be like, let's go. We got to go get some fortune cookies. Okay. So we leave the 1600s and we flash forward to 1993 Salem and a high school classroom. This is where we meet Max, who is skeptical of Halloween. He has just moved to Salem from sunny California. And when he shuts down the idea of witches in class, a girl named Allison schools him in front of everyone. And he sees this as an opportunity to give her his number. He is so cringy to me. Please tell me how you feel about Max, because I... I, I start cringing, but by the end of it, I'm like, oh, I think I only cringe because I was I can relate to being that young and cynical. And like, I didn't believe in astrology. I didn't believe in popular music. And when like someone said they liked it, I was not a cool person about it. I'd be like, well, actually, it's actually really fucking stupid that you like that mainstream thing. You yeah, know, the Beatles aren't even that good. I was such a little asshole, <laughs> a pretentious little prick. And like, that's definitely coming through with Max. But the reason that I think he's annoying in this scene particularly is like, 
Why give her your number, dude? With her yabos looking like they do, you don't stand a chance. (laughs) She gives it right back to him, which I think is so funny. Allison is like low-key a pretty badass character. Oh, for sure. Here we go. Another fucking fun fact for you. Do you know who was originally offered the role of Max but turned it down? Ooh, give me a hint. Paint me like one of your French girls. <gasps> Shut up. Leo? Yeah. Kate Winslet? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been crazy. Oh no, Leonardo God. DiCaprio was offered this role. I actually met with Kenny Ortega. And Kenny was like, come on, Leo, will you do it? <laughs> and he said, no, I'm going to do What's Eating Gilbert Grape instead. Oh, wow. What a miss. What a miss. What? I, I think it's smart because at this point in his career, he can either go, I'm a serious 12-year-old actor or I'm a Disney Justin Timberlake child actor. What's Eating Gilbert Grape is not a good movie. I like that movie. Uh, I think he did a good job. I mean, his I don't role think he is job. he should not be playing that kind of character. However, I think he did a good job. I think he should have taken this film. Well, there is an alternative universe where Leo <laughs> signed on. Maybe. You know, I am kind of glad it was an unknown because I get to enjoy it without, you know, feeling weird. So he's only an unknown because that actor didn't really do much after this. Hey, I'm sorry. Oh. That's unfortunate. That's... I mean, all of them were, you know, all of the, not Dora Birch, but like the other children were unknown. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. And we're not known. No one knows who we are. I'm actually completely anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fake name. This is a fake voice. (laughs) Imagine if I was like in the witness protection program and just decided to join a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, Sam, at least use a different name. Come on, Sam. You you can't be at openly gay about Hocus Pocus. (laughs) You're in the witness protection program. Um, So that night is Halloween and he and Max begrudgingly takes his little sister, Danny, played by Thora Birch, out trick or treating. We're not talking about the yabo scene. You want? Okay. She says yabos. (laughs) (laughs) End of scene. End of scene. Oh, wait. Okay. So I get really fucking sick and tired Mm -hmm. of seeing main character people in DCOMs complain about their life when they have the single most coolest bedroom I've ever fucking seen. Yeah, it's like a fucking loft with, with the, like a little wallpaper. staircase that goes to the tippity top. Yeah. Mm-mm. He had his own room, period. A drum set? Yeah. I'm sick. And your parents dressed in like Madonna looking cool as fuck? Get out of here. You don't have a real problem, sir. Yeah, Thora Birch is your sister. She's hilarious and owns you. You have no idea what you're missing out on. None. Sickening. Um, so they run into Allison and her yabos while out trick-or-treating, <laughs> and together they sneak into the old Sanderson house, where Max finds a candle with a little sign on it that says, if a virgin lights the black flame candle on Halloween night, it will raise the spirits of the dead. And so what does he do? Lights the damn thing, because it's all just a bunch of hocus-pocus to him. What a virgin to do something like that. What a virgin move. Honestly. And you'll notice in this scene that Allison declines to light the candle. <gasps> so. So. Come back to that later. Yeah. He lights the candle, of course. The black flame appears, of course. A strange wind begins to blow. The ground begins to shake. And the sisters appear. And we get one of my favorite lines in this whole thing. Where Max says, what happened? <laughs> and his sister says to him. A virgin lit the candle. (laughs) The brevity of this eight-year-old actor to deliver these lines like that. She has no business being this good. We've said such incredible things about Thora Birch on our Now and Then episode. She's an incredibly talented actor. God, her fucking performance in Hocus Pocus, though, perfect. Chef's kiss. Beat for beat, just perfect. She does some really heavy emotional lifting, too, with Mm -hmm. Thackeray dying multiple times in the film and her... Oh, I just like feel my little heart burst whenever she's sad. She's acting circles around these like 19 year olds she's playing across of. And like, yeah, she's evoking more emotions in scenes with the cat than like any of them could handle. Yeah. Also her outfit slaps. Classic. I would wear that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about virginity in this film because it comes up time and time and time again that Max is a virgin. We need a virgin to light the candle. Da, 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 da. I did a bunch of online reading and a bunch of my own thinkery, and I found four different kind of angles as to why virginity is brought up in Hocus Pocus. Do you have any theories, first of all? It's funny that he's oh, a virgin. Five, theory, five theories, then. 
<laughs> what are the other four? Okay. Uh, the first one that I think is pretty likely and the most obvious is that there's like the virgin rule in horror movies, particularly in slashers, that the virgin will survive while the characters that engage in sexual acts die. Sure. It's a moral thing. Bada bing, bada boom. And in this case, they kind of do like a little subversion because for once, it's not a female gendered character that is a virgin. It's a male gendered character. Mm -hmm. That's fun. I like that. Yeah. A second theory on how virginity is used in Hocus Pocus is that it's this kind of comment on male sexuality. This one's a lot less fun because, and this was also one that's really hotly contested among like different bloggers and critics online, is that some are saying that the idea of Max being a virgin is kind of negatively enforcing this idea that a man's virginity is not to be prized. Basically, like making fun of Max for being a virgin is like saying, why are you still holding on to that virgin card? You're not a man until you lose your virginity. But then there's on the flip side where some people are saying because Max doesn't seem offended by the fact that people are constantly (laughs) talking about how he hasn't had sex yet, that it's kind of showing him to be like a confident character, confident in his sexuality and knowing that that is something that he controls. So you kind of get this spectrum of people saying this is just a comment on male sexuality in a Disney movie. I don't know. Yeah, I when I say like it's funny he's a virgin, it's funny that all of them are virgins. They're children, you know. It's the same beat of like you're a virgin who can't drive, you know. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Because it really these films, these these studios, these massive productions are hung around a story and it really contextualizes things when you realize I'm supposed to believing that this character is really a child. Mm-hmm. And so I think they all should be virgins. Like yeah. it, it's funny. Yeah. Like he, duh, he's a virgin. They're all virgins. And if some of them aren't, then that's like totally fine too. But I think it is really funny that like, it also ties into the like cultural significance of a teenager. You're like, oh crap, I'm a virgin. <laughs> There's like life before virginity and life after virginity. Yeah. And the fact that his eight-year-old sister can comment on that, too, it's just kind of like, it's so not something you're used to seeing in this context. It is kind of comical. And also maybe it's something for the adults in the audience to be like, huh. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you're a kid, you have certain landmarks in your life that you pass. You get your driver's license, you get your first job, and you lose your virginity. All of these things are just like these these checkpoints in your life. So like, it's just another checkpoint that I think like, uh, it's just funny because they're all obviously children. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they're making a remark on male virginity being worthless. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, come on, y'all. Yeah. Pump the brakes. Yeah. It's a bit much. Um, A third theory that was pretty interesting. And actually, like before I read this online, I kind of was like, wait a second, is this is this what's happening in the movie? But there's a theory on the internet that Max may not leave the film with his virginity intact. No, I disagree. I don't agree either, but there is like a plot point in the like kind of uh, false climax of the film where they bring the witches into the pottery kiln at the school, and light them ablaze. We see them go up in smoke. The witches are dead, or so we're meant to believe. Max, Allison, and uh, Danny go back to Max's house and all kind of pass out at the house. And we see this shot of Allison kind of curling up to Max under a blanket. And then there's a hard cut. And basically one of the next few scenes is the witches come back to life and Sarah sings this enchanting song, basically this Pied Piper song to the children of Salem. And all the children of Salem turn into zombies and are answering the call that Sarah's put out to come to their magical house but who doesn't answer the call is allison and max which we've already kind of established that allison is probably not a virgin if she refused to light the candle and all of a sudden max is not a virgin anymore even though we know for sure he is because he lit the black fame candle but now he's just impervious to this call by sarah so they're saying maybe in that like cut time under the blankets something happened I who can never be sure. I disagree with that. I mean, the, their whole lore, like every time you see them eating a child, it's like a six-year-old kid. I think like being a virgin and being a teenager and being a kid, those are all different things. Yeah, you, I agree. Yeah, I don't think he lost his virginity. I don't think Max has game like that. Like <laughs> you guys have just ran around witches for like hours. You think you're just going to like close your eyes and have sex? Like, no, they're going to sleep. <laughs> like I'm tired. <laughs> they're barely holding hands. Yeah, exactly. And then the fourth theory on Max's virginity and why it plays such 
a key into how the witches awaken is like to me this is how i always thought about it is so if the witch's life force is sustained by the energy of children this like young pure energy wouldn't that young pure energy be the very thing that they need to bring them back from the dead so they need a virgin to light the candle because that's that pure childlike energy that gives them life so that's what i always thought is like by a virgin lighting the candle they're kind of like whooshing over some of their energy this childlike energy to kind of make the spell complete that's yeah that's a vibe i got like you know you're waking up after 100 years and boom your door dash is right there you know what i'm saying like <laughs> time to eat your meal you know little eat fly just woke up that little spider you know mm -hmm. one and done to wrap this up there's a version of the film you can watch on youtube that every time they say the word virgin like a little counter comes up and goes <laughs> ding in the corner <laughs> i don't know how many times but it's like in the double digits love it so back in the witch's cottage the witches try to steal and eat danny and mainly with the help of allison and binks the cat the kids escape with the book and Winnie resurrects her old boyfriend, Zombie Billy, played by Doug Jones, to Let's chase them down. Go. Are we talking about Doug Jones now? You bring. You made me appreciate Doug Jones. So please, what you got to say? Doug Jones is an incredible actor. You might notice him for roles in which he does not speak at all. He is the fish guy in The Shape of Water. <laughs> he is Billy in this film. He's also, most importantly to me, he plays the lead gentleman in the episode of Hush from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <gasps> no way! That's definitely him. He's wow. very, he was originally a mime and contortionist and he became very popular as a physical actor because he is so thin and is so bendy that he is able to fit into prosthetics that are built around him and still maintain a very slender frame. Mm. Um, he's also in Hellboy. He's like in a thousand different things. Um, but he he looks fantastic in prosthetics and he says he doesn't mind them at all. And he's just a very physically forward actor who I think being a mime definitely helped him. There's a there's plenty of videos of him talking about his experience. And I'm sure Kenny Ortega had a good time directing him with how choreographed forward he was. But um, he's just so physically present in a way that is just amazing to watch on camera. Absolutely. Uh, the Billy character is so much fun. And Kenny Ortega definitely says in interviews how much he enjoyed working with Doug Jones. And he told this story that I thought was so cool and interesting, but... Billy's mouth is sewn shut for most of the film, but in the scene towards the end when he finally cuts his the cords holding his mouth sewn free, he like coughs out a bunch of moths and dust. Mm -hmm. How they did that was they the special effects people actually put like this weird little balloon into Doug Jones's mouth, uh, squeezed a bunch of dust and put physical moths into this balloon. Huh sewed his mouth shut or put the little strings that made his mouth look sewn shut and he practically like like puffed out these moths and dust in the take so all those little moths are like flinging around in this balloon in his mouth <laughs> while they're like getting all the cameras rolling and kenny said he was like totally cool with it never squirmed never complained and just like really gave his all in the performance and made that character really fun. Yeah, he seems like a really game actor. It, it reminds me of Jim Carrey while playing the Grinch said that he had to have like a U.S. Marine train him to be able to have the patience to get his prosthetics put on because he was like very, very claustrophobic. Oof. And so that was a huge challenge for him playing the Grinch. And it also reminds me of, there's a scene in The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo where Daniel Craig is um, getting his head wrapped in cellophane. And I watched the commentary and David, <laughs> David Fincher is like, actually, you cannot fake this. He, we had to wrap Daniel Craig's whole head in cellophane and he was suffocating for every single one of these takes. And David Fincher famously takes like 300 yeah. takes of everything. Uh, but he said that he was very merciful with this and only did it a few times. Wow. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but there's a scene like that in Don't Worry Darling as well, where Florence Pugh wraps her head in cellophane. And mm -hmm. I was like watching it like, how the fuck did they do that? Is she just like 
literally suffocating in there? Like, what happens if it goes wrong? That was my first instinct was to think of the girl with the dragon tattoo. But the the difference being the girl with the dragon tattoo, the take where he's being wrapped in cellophane has no cuts. Don't worry, darling, had several cuts. So I imagine they just wrapped it and had it affixed to the back of her head where she could remove it. Yeah. But in, yeah, the girl with the dragon tattoo, you see him being wrapped and wrapped and wrapped around the head. And he has to go (gasps) and try to breathe. And he's just suffocating. Terrifying. That's just something fun. So anyway, Doug Jones is doing that, but with <laughs> live bugs in his mouth. Oh! oh, he seems like such a cool dude. He really does. So after this, the Sanderson sisters go into Salem hunting for children and the book. And there's really comical moments where they kind of meet instruments of the 20th century. Like they get on a bus and it's like this massive chariot and they see children running around in all these costumes. And Mary says, like, I smell children, but I can't see them. (laughs) And I thought that was really cool because this connects to a piece of like Halloween history that I know about. So where the idea of costuming came from at Halloween for trick-or-treating and stuff actually is based on something really similar to what we see here. But basically, Halloween is based around this pagan festival called Samhain, which happens, you know, in late October. And this fire festival celebration, basically everyone in the town would come forth and there would be parties and merriment, you know, before winter came, essentially. And the idea was like at this time of year, there would be spirits and ancestors able to come over to the side of the living. And not all of those spirits were good spirits or were believed to be good spirits. So the people in the town would wear masks and costumes basically to prevent themselves from being seen and recognized by these evil spirits. And so that kind of tradition carried forward into today's Halloween. We kind of do it for merriment and fun. But it's just funny in this context, like these kids wearing costumes is like this ancient tradition where that was exactly what the costumes were meant for. To like hide from spirits meaning to do you wrong. And I just thought that was cute. God, so much cool shit comes from pagans. That shit's awesome. And it's also giving Halloween Town, like literally every time they see their grandmother, she has to come on the Halloween Town bus that can only come on Halloween when the spirits uh. sh- like shift. She gets to see them for like 30 minutes and she gets back on the bus. So the kids make a run for it to this dope looking Halloween party that their parents are at. Hell yeah, this party looks fucking awesome. I want to go to this party. Everyone is committed. Everyone's costume looks like they spent like a lot of money on, especially their mother as like cone bra Madonna. Like, Again, come on, icon. That's so good for the adults in the audience because I had no idea what that was when I was six. But now I'm like, yes, your mom is so cool. She's Madonna. Yeah, exactly. And also probably a Kenny Ortega choice there. Oh, for sure. Because you said he worked with Madonna. Yeah. Ugh. Easter eggs. So good. So the sisters show up at the party as well, lured by, I guess, the scent of Max and his friends. Smelly. And they perform a number. I know the one. (laughs) Thank you, Max, for that marvelous introduction. (laughs) I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. (laughs) You can't stop things I do. I ain't lying. No! No! Don't look at that! Been 300 years, right down to the day. Now the witch is back, and there's hell to pay. I just can't on you. Incredible. Incredible. Can we talk about Bette Midler now? Yes. God fucking damn it. This is a masterclass. Physicality, inflection, just commanding a fucking scene. If she's in the shot, you're screwed. Yeah. You know, fuck yeah, she's the best. Yeah, she is. She's perfection. She has actually performed this song on tour, like within the last five years. And of course, people, if I saw Bette Midler perform this, like... I would be like, she owns my ass. Like, she is number one. 
so good in this scene. And it's so fun and campy. Like, there's no reason that they should know this song. There's no reason that suddenly the band would just, like, start playing with them. There's no reason that these <laughs> witches would know what a microphone is and sing back up <laughs> gladly. It's just so good. This is... Of course, this is the scene I think of the most and one I'll just like kind of watch periodically throughout the year on YouTube Mm -hmm. because it just brings me so much joy. It's so much fun. She's like casting these spell over all the parents to make them just dance until dawn. And I'm like, I would willingly give myself over to that spell. It's called Molly Winifred. (laughs) And I would gladly take some from you. (laughs) I love that. And there's so like this is the scene, as Lizzie was mentioning, that is just Easter eggs for the adults because they don't get much screen time in this film. But you see like the Supremes. I think you see like John Lennon like very quickly in this scene. All of the adult costumes are like on point. Every adult costume in this movie is so good. Special shout out to the devil that they saw earlier in the film. <laughs> Master, it's really him. <laughs> oh, so fucking good. I might, I love when they see the road and they're like, they call it like a black river or something. It, it's firm. <laughs> they're just like tapping on it. <laughs> so fucking funny. I was tempted to show you that scene, but I couldn't show you every fucking scene in the movie. We'd just be watching the movie first. I know. <laughs> All right. So long story short. Like I mentioned earlier, Max and Allison end up locking the sisters in the kiln at the high school and putting them up in flames, but they're not actually dead. And so they end up at this final showdown in the graveyard. The sisters have stolen Danny um, and withheld a small amount of the potion they've created to feed to her so that they can suck out her life force. But Max sacrifices himself by taking the potion meant for Danny. And Winnie says something that made me feel things. She says, what a fool to give up thy life for thy sister. Mm. Winnie tries to steal Max's life force, but at the last second, the sun rises and turns the sisters to dust. Thackeray Binks' soul is freed from his cat body, his spell broken. We see his soul in the graveyard, and he is finally reunited with his sister Emily. And I'd like to show you the rest of this scene. Thank you. You freed me, Danny. Thank you. Hey, Max. Thanks for lighting the candle. Get him. <laughs> Last words as they fade off into the nothingness. Anyway, Max the Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> Sam, would you care to tell me a brief description of that scene and maybe a little bit of how it made you feel? Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the most moving scenes in this film for me personally. I love Thackeray Banks. I think he's the best character, him and Billy are so much fun when they're on screen. But Thackeray passes away after the witches are turned to dust. And Danny has a very emotional response to this because she feels a huge kinship to him. Um, But she is consoled by his ghost who is passing over to the other side and joining his little sister, Emily, but not without saying a final (laughs) farewell to Max. (laughs) The virgin! <laughs> like, ouch, y'all. God he just damn saved it. you, sort of. He just got burned by a cat ghost. You're like, okay, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. I really, I don't think I remember the, like, sibling love theme running so heavily in this film. But it really did make me feel things this last time I watched it. Because he, uh, Thackeray Binks as a cat says something to Max earlier at like a quiet moment in the film where he's like, he says something to the effect of like, you won't know how much you're, you'll are you miss your little sister until she's gone. Like you need to do everything to protect her. Yeah. And that's such a sweet sentiment for watching this movie as a kid. You know, you fucking hate your little sister, your little brother, your big brother or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's a good reminder that at the end of the day, the parents didn't believe that these witches were real but that these two siblings and these friends got together and were able to defeat this evil power and i just i think it is nice retroactively looking back 
Yeah, your parents, and I think that's a theme in a lot of children's movies that involve horror, like your parents won't believe you and that's understood, but your siblings will always know you better than anyone else will know you. And when Thackeray Binks said that line as a kid, you know, I was like, oh, that's sweet. But like as an adult hearing that, I just think like, he's also kind of saying like, you should appreciate your sister as a child now because she'll never be this anymore. You know, when you think about your sister, like when I think about my sisters, we're all fully grown women now. But when I remember them in their essence, they're just like little kids, like I'm a little kid. And that fades so quickly. So I think that he gets that moment at the end where he gets to appreciate that she's like a kid and he gets to appreciate like, I don't know. It makes it all sweeter. Yeah. Or the idea of mortality, they really hit you with here at the end too, because you also see, you also see Danny like mourning, you know, the body of this dead cat, but the like kind of immediate realization and understanding that like, oh, his soul gets to live on in this like other place. And and like life is not as transient as it seems like in this world, at least there is that hope of an afterlife like fucking kind of heavy for kids and like, but really hopeful in this strange way. And, you know, all these things get lost on me as a seven-year-old, but I think, I think they're still in there somewhere. It's hitting that Mamma Mia beat of like slipping through my my fingers. 100% same fucking feeling. Why are you throwing this in here just to fucking wreck me? (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, Finally, though, we are doing a movie without any mommy issues in it. Truly. I mean, yeah. Well, arguably. Some. Mommy and daddy. (laughs) Slight. They're light. Oh, God. And that's the film. So wonderful. Um, But let's get into the reception and the legacy. So a fact that's become kind of famous recently is that Hocus Pocus was a flop when it was first released. So it was released in 1993 in July in theaters. At first, I was like, why the fuck would they release this in July? Yeah. But what had happened was they had already planned to release Nightmare Before Christmas, another Disney Halloween film, later that year as more of like a Halloween Christmas cusp movie. So I guess to not interfere with those kind of movies overlapping, they released it in July. But it basically meant that when the film hit theaters, it was not well received, not well attended. So when the film was initially released in theaters, it ended up not making its money back and had a deficit of $16 million. (sighs) However, when I asked you earlier, Sam, when you watched this movie, how did you remember viewing it? And it wasn't in theaters and it wasn't on DVD. It was on television. That's exactly correct. So what happened later in the 90s is that this film started getting programmed on Disney Channel and ABC Family for their kind of 13 days of Halloween programming. And that's where the film really built its audience years after its release. And it was exposed to millions and millions of new viewers that way because those millions of viewers didn't go see it in that small, you know, three week range. It was in theaters in 1993. But now it was something they could learn to expect every year. And it has only grown in viewership in the 25 years since its release. And actually it's kind of, it's how I came to the film too. If I think back, like I remember watching this movie with commercials on ABC family Mm -hmm. and maybe even watching it like two or three times a year because I would just turn on the TV and there would be, and I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll watch the last two thirds of Hocus Pocus. Why not? Yeah. And I could remember the plot points, like when they would cut to commercial, there would be like a moment and then boom, black commercial exactly like Hannah Montana's going on at 7 p.m only on Disney Channel they would (laughs) (laughs) the mouse ears yeah and not that it matters but critics hated this movie it has like a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes critics were shit talking mostly that it was just like a childish movie which I'm like it's for children it's for children so why fucking Ebert and Ebert in particular, gave it like one out of four stars, called it like basically unwatchable. He can suck my ass. He really can. And a lot of people were also saying how like sad and depressing it was to see Bette Midler in this role. What? And I'm like, this is one of her best and biggest and most legacy inducing roles of all time. Like, how can you say that? Just because she's doing something for fun that she's enjoying. How is that sad? Ugh, that's so embarrassing. Those aged like what paper towels yeah i mean that's what you get you fucking 
post something in 1994 and we're still here to read and now mock you for it. <laughs> we're going through every bad review from like the 90s. Blacklist. <laughs> never watching him again. So yeah, this film has one hell of a legacy. Every year, millions of people watch it on television. They watch it on streaming now. It gets a million dollars in DVD sales every year. It's a fucking classic. Absolute classic. I was at Home Depot earlier today getting keys made and I saw Hocus Pocus little witchy decorations, like little lights you can project on your house and shit. Aww. I almost bought one for the podcast, but I was like, oh, wait, they can't see lights. <laughs> but- can you hear lights? <laughs> <laughs> so one final little tidbit for you before we go into the scores. Did you know that they are currently in pre-production for a Broadway musical of Hocus Pocus? Matilda, pack your fucking bags. It's Lion Hocus King. Pocus time. Sorry. Yeah. I want to see that so oh, bad. I'm, I'm so there. I'm so there. Imagine Wicked but camp. Oh, camper. Campier. <laughs> All right, Sam, let's score this movie. Let's score this switch. Um, you want to explain the scores? No, you do it. <laughs> How the subtextual score works is we rate the movie in two categories. How gay is it and how good is it? Those scores are averaged together. Out of 10, we get an overall subtextual score. Hell yar. Deserve. All right, Sam, on a scale of one ten. to... Ten. <laughs> you don't even know what question I'm going to ask. <laughs> I hope it's how good is it. How good is this movie? Ten. Wow. I'm going to say a nine. Okay. My love. Be like that. Yeah, well, you know, it has a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, so... <laughs> I've said suck my ass too many times on this episode, but they can suck my ass. Virgins. <laughs> so, Sam, how gay is this movie on a scale of one to ten? Two. Two? Yeah. What are your two points for? Just curious. Kenny? Mm-hmm. Ortega. <laughs> two words for you. Yeah. And because if I see any sort of person wearing this costume, I assume they're a drag queen, and that fills me with delight. Yeah. Fair enough. What about you? Like, it is important for gay people, but it is not gay itself, so it's hard to score it. Yeah. Damn. If I say a two, you're going to be like, oh, well, that's what I said. Just say three, then. (laughs) Fine. Three, then. (laughs) Hocus Pocus gets a subtextual score of six. Even? Six, period. I love it. I love it. That's great. And it deserves every single point. Yeah. Oh, man. I love this fucking movie. Sam. You love this fucking movie? Yeah, I fucking love this movie. I love this movie one point more than you do, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> so have you learned anything? Um, no. Not a single <laughs> damn thing. My brain is empty. Head empty. I live with these facts. I carry them as a badge of honor. I know way too much about Hocus Pocus. Did you learn anything? I learned one thing. We're all in this together. Cut the tape. Cut the cameras. How we are. We're all stars. And we we see it. (laughs) Let's go. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween, guys. We'll see you next week with something super special. 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 Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.